Matthew chapter 5. Why don't we stand if we're physically able and we'll read the rest of Matthew chapter 5 as we honor God's Word tonight. It says in verse 31, Furthermore, it's been said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife for any reason, except sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks, and for him who wants to borrow, do not turn away. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you might be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust." For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Don't even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Wow, thanks for making it so easy, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. God, there's nothing like your word. And as you spoke these words to your disciples, Lord, we're gathered here tonight. Lord, we're not here tonight because we've got nothing to do. We're not here tonight because we're, we're perfectly refreshed. Lord, I know for many, Lord, uh, a good nap would have been a great idea. For, for others, Lord, uh, there's, there's many things our flesh wanted to do tonight. But Lord, we're here. We're here tonight because we want to hear from you. We want to be your disciples. We want you to shine your light deep into our hearts and show us, Lord, where we need to be altered. And so I pray tonight, Lord, you'd make us sensitive, sensitive to what you want to say, sensitive to your spirit. Again, I thank you so much for these precious men and women that you brought to this place, for those that are watching online at home. Lord, may you bless our time in your word tonight, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. On one of my recent trips out to Texas, I was on my way back and had the rental car and you guys that travel, you know, you've got to fill that rental car up with gas unless you want to, you know, pay that pre-rental car fill-up fee and then who knows if you, it just, so you just say, yes, I'll fill it up on the way back. So I'm filling up the car of gas on the way back and as I'm sitting there, this 
this older lady comes next to me. She opens up her door and just smacks me in the back as I'm trying to clean some trash out of there. And then she kind of climbs out and kind of says, oh, I'm sorry. And then she looks and she says, are you okay? And I looked right back at her and I said, yes, I am fine. I looked at her and said, yes, my lips said yes, because she seemed like a sweet, old, nice lady. But my heart, oh, my heart, my heart was thinking, no, you see, no, I, I don't know. I was thinking, no, no, I'm not okay. You just jammed your car door right into my back. You see, sometimes what our mouths say and what our actions do are a far cry from where our hearts are at. And while that might be entirely appropriate when it comes to dealing with elderly ladies in a parking lot, it is not okay when it comes to following the Lord. Where our heart is at matters, friends. It matters. Jesus doesn't want you and I as disciples just going through the motions. He wants our hearts into it. And so after Jesus has been teaching the kingdom attitudes, the attitudes we're to have as members of God's kingdom, and after he's been teaching that those kingdom attitudes are not to be lived in just some Christian commune, but they're to be lived in the world and the community that God places us in, he began to then share with his disciples six Old Testament examples of the law. And with these, what he does, he says, here's what you've heard. Here's what the Pharisees have told you is important. And then he goes on to share God's heart behind the law to these disciples. You see, with each of them, the Pharisees were great at the outward observances of the law, but they were missing the heart. And by that, they were missing the heart of God completely. And if we're going to be disciples, we need to do more than just go through the motions Going through the motions is what Pharisees do. Disciples understand the heart behind the law. So he gives six Old Testament examples, two of which we we did last week, to quickly review. Number one, he tells them, you've heard it said of old, you shall not murder. The Pharisees were pretty proud of themselves. They would say, and I can just see them, well, I've never killed anybody. I'm a perfect keeper of the law. Great, pin a rose on your nose. You've never put anybody to death. But as we looked at last week, they're walking around with hate in their hearts. They were bitter with their brothers. And Jesus points out that that's not the heart of the law at all. As a disciple, we need to let go of the bitterness because if we don't, we're as guilty of violating the heart of God's law as if we had actually killed the person. Now, don't misunderstand me. The heart of God's law, not the actual law. You see, don't take by that that if you're angry, hey, just go ahead and put that guy to death because I've violated violated God's law, so it's the same to God. Eh, Wrong. No, 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 no. It violates the heart of the law. You're as equally a sinner before God, but friends, murder and hate is different. It's different to God. It's different to the law. No one puts you to death because you're bitter. That's just how it happens. So, so that's not what we mean. What we mean is we can't walk around like the Pharisees were, all prideful. Hey, I've never killed anyone as we're angry and bitter. No, if you want to be a disciple, you have to let it go because that anger and bitterness will quench what God wants to do in your life. 
The second thing we looked at last week is, is he said, hey, you've heard it said by the Pharisees, you shall not commit adultery. Again, the Pharisees were really proud. I've never cheated on my wife. Therefore, I have not violated the law. But again, they were walking around with lust in their hearts. They were not controlling the thought life of their minds at all. And Jesus again says, you're missing the heart of the law. As a disciple, I need to guard my heart. I need to guard the thoughts and the images. Thoughts and images are going to come in. But as we looked at last week, it's what you do next that really matters. We live in a fallen world. We have eyes. Images are going to come in. The, the thing is, what do you do next? Do I take that second look? Do I meditate on the sin in my heart? You see, as a disciple, I need to deal seriously with the thoughts of the heart. Not to just be proud because I've never acted on those thoughts as the Pharisees were doing. I need to get to the heart of the law. Well, we move on now to the third thing that Jesus mentions to the disciples. And he says, he mentions the certificate of divorce. Look again in verse 31. He says, furthermore, it's been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. To understand what Jesus is saying, we have to understand the context. Jesus lived in a culture that was being plagued with divorce, much like our own culture. The problem in Jesus' time is there were two prominent rabbis. Rabbi Shammai and Rabbi Hillel. And they were influencing, we got actual photos of them, just so you know, just kidding. These guys were influencing the culture at the time and they were at opposite ends of the spectrum. The law spoke of an allowance for divorce. If you found, listen guys, if you found uncleanness in your wife, well, then the law, and again, not the Bible, but their writings on the law, gave them permission to divorce if they found, quote-unquote, uncleanness in their wife. Now, how do you interpret what that term uncleanness means? Rabbi Shammai was conservative, and he said it means only sexual immorality. Rabbi Shammai taught that as the only reason for divorce. Rabbi Hillel, on the other, time, on the other hand, interpreted uncleanness as anything that caused you as a man to sin. If your wife ever caused you to sin, she was worthy to be divorced. See why divorce is rampant? My wife never caused me to sin, but you guys understand why that would be tough in your marriage that you have, right? Listen, understand, understand. They had actually written down that if your wife put too much pepper on your eggs and you took a bite of that egg, and it was like, oh, oh, too much pepper, and you got mad. Well, that's sin. Therefore, your wife is unclean, and you had every right to divorce her because she over-peppered your eggs. <laughs> of course, my favorite is it's actually written down in their interpretations of the law that if you saw a woman that was, quote-unquote, more clean than your wife, <laughs> then you could say, since I found someone who's more clean, you're unclean and your wife would be technically unclean and you could legally divorce her. So you can understand with holding to Rabbi, Rabbi Hillel's teaching, divorce was rampant in Jesus' day. In fact, you know, as it is in our day, 80% today of our population has been affected directly or indirectly by divorce. And Jesus' words to his disciples 
was not just for him to give a political position, even though obviously he settled far more closer to Rabbi Shammai than Rabbi Hillel. But he's not just giving us a political position. He's showing the difference between the outward observance of the law, which the Pharisees considered righteousness, and righteousness from the heart. The Pharisees were declaring themselves as acceptable to God, even though they were going through wives like you'd go through, you know, tissues in a box of Kleenex. Even though that was the reality, they were saying, hey, I'm, I'm pure according to the letter of the law. You see, paperwork was the only issue. They prided themselves on the fact they did not commit adultery, but Jesus said, I say to you, everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery in his heart. In verses 29 and 30, he shows them that no sacrifice is too great to maintain moral purity. Then the verses we just read, he indicts them for adultery because they were committing it by putting their wives away for silly reasons. The ease of divorce made it possible to avoid, in their minds, open adultery. Only a little paperwork was required to legalize their lust. But that's not the heart of God and not the heart of a true disciple. The teaching of God's word and his heart toward marriage is clear. It's clear. When God established marriage in Genesis chapter 2, he said, The two shall become one flesh. Friends, it's more than entering into a legal relationship. It's a spiritual union that's created. And when that spiritual union is created, there's never a simple no harm break. There's always heartache. There's always consequences, especially for the literal fulfillment of the two becoming one, especially when it comes to kids. There's heartache. Many of you come from a divorced family. You know firsthand. I come from a divorced family. I know firsthand. The heartache and the pain is real. And so for those reasons, it's easy to understand when when God spoke to his people through the prophet Malachi about his feelings on divorce, he said in Malachi 2.16, for the Lord God of Israel says he hates divorce. He hates it. He sees what it does to you as the individuals going through it. He sees what it does to the kids. And he says, I hate it. He didn't hate you. He hates divorce. He doesn't hate you. He hates divorce because it sees what it does to you. He sees what it does to kids. And that's why in the Old Testament, the only reason for divorce was death. It was till death do you part. If you're dead, well, if you're dead, you're not getting remarried. If your spouse is dead, then you can remarry. Now, Jesus adds another reason, that being immorality. And the word immorality speaks of adultery and all other forms of sexual perversion. But think that through with me. The reality is all of those sins that are under the title of immorality, in the Old Testament, they resulted in death. The marriage was over not because of some technicality of the law. It was over because the offender was dead. But by Jesus' day, the Romans had made the death penalty hard to come by. So divorce was allowed because in the case of adultery, friends, apart from resurrection, Jesus understood the marriage may be dead. He permits divorce as the only reason. He permits divorce, uh, he permits adultery as a reason for divorce, but he permitted it. Listen, listen, he didn't command it. God can bring resurrection. 
And if you're going through something like that right now, can I just encourage you? And we've got a team of great pastors here that would love to meet with you and pray with you if you're willing as a couple to work on that marriage or you're heading that way instead of trying to do it on your own, instead of just experiencing, you know, the ramifications of sin. Friends, God wants to step in. He wants to step in and bring resurrection. He wants to step in and let there be a miracle. But you've got to be willing. It's not his command. Oh, there's been immorality. Oh, divorce has to happen. Jesus is just saying, I understand. You see, the two become one. There's a spiritual union. And when someone else is introduced into that union, sometimes the hurt is so deep. Sometimes the pain is so vast that apart from a resurrection from Jesus Christ, the marriage can be dead. And so he says, I see it and I understand it in that case. But friends, before we move on, I want to make something very clear. Jesus says that those who divorce and remarry without biblical grounds commit adultery. But it does not say that they live in continual adultery. Why I'm saying this is divorce is sin. What's the definition of sin? You remember. Sin means missing the mark. You have missed God's best that He intended. But is there forgiveness for the sin of divorce? Of course there is. And as a church, far be it from us to say, every sin is forgiven man except divorce. That is not what the Bible says. That is not what the Bible says. Sometimes we love to take our own personal convictions and pet peeves and like insert them as Bible verses. You know, I was just talking to a dear brother who was telling me, I'm fully convinced, he told me, that if you don't believe in the gifts of the Spirit, you're not saved. What do you think about that? I'm like, I think that's wrong. That's what I think. I believe in the gifts of the Spirit. I believe they're for today. I, I think we should operate in the gifts of the Spirit. But if you don't, to hell, no, 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 of course not. Because that's not what the Bible says. And when it comes to divorce, the Bible doesn't say that's the unforgivable sin. The Bible says all sin is forgiven except the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. If you deny the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, His work to get you to see your need to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you deny that work, meaning you never repent, you never say, God, come into my heart, come into my life, if you deny that work of the Spirit, then there is no forgiveness for you. But for everything else, with genuine repentance, there certainly is forgiveness. There certainly is newness. And it's sad, and I've seen it before, the church can treat divorcees like they're some sort of lepers. Does God hate divorce? Yes, He does. Because He sees the pain it causes. But friends, newsflash, God hates all sin. All sin. Every one of our sins He hates. And tonight, all of us, we're all marked. We're all bruised by sin in this room tonight. But praise God, we believe in Jesus. And we believe He is the Son of God. We believe that He died and rose again. And we believe that He paid for us all. And as the song goes, we believe that He's here now, standing in our midst, here with the power to heal now and the grace to forgive. God loves to forgive. God loves to take that which is broken and make it new. And we need to see that as disciples tonight. 
The fourth example from the Old Testament is taking oaths. Look at verse 33. He says, Again, you've heard it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by his earth, for it's his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. The next law that Jesus deals with is the act of swearing. Now, not swearing as in saying bad words, though that's not good either, and if you're a disciple, shouldn't be doing that. But swearing in the sense of swearing an oath to prove your honesty. Honesty is an issue we all face and struggle with. The great preacher George MacDonald wrote to his son on December 6, 1878. He said, I always try, at least I think I do, (laughs) to be truthful. All the same, I tell a great many lies. R. Kent Hughes said, I don't try to lie. But as I'm speaking to someone, sometimes I suddenly realize what I'm saying is not the truth, not holy. It's part of our sin nature. We go beyond the story. We make ourselves look in a better light. Honesty is a struggle for every single one of us. So then we make oaths. I promise. I love it. I love it when pastors say, honestly now, like the rest I've been saying is a lie. But honestly now, here's the truth. Obviously, that's not what we mean. But, but, but listen, Deuteronomy 10.20 says, Fear the Lord your God and serve Him. Hold fast to Him and take your oaths in His name. You see, the old, in the Old Testament, oaths were encouraged. What was discouraged was breaking the oath that you have made. In Leviticus, it says, Do not swear falsely by my name, so profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. God says, It's okay if you take an oath, just don't break it. The problem in Jesus' day was the rabbis had this teaching over these oaths which said, Here's the ones you could keep, but here's what you'd do if you wanted to avoid, uh, avoid keeping your, 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 your honesty that you had made. In the Mishnah, it devotes an entire chapter to this elaborate discussion of which O's are binding and which are not. Literally, written in the Mishnah, would say, would say these kind of things. It would say, if you swore by the altar, you didn't have to keep it. I promise, by the altar of God. That sounds pretty, pretty amazing. But you didn't have to keep it because it was the altar. But if you swore by the sacrifice on the altar, ooh, now, now you had to keep that. What? If you swore by the temple, I promise by the temple of God. That sounds pretty heavy. But you didn't have to keep that, the Mishnah said. That was like a, fingers were behind my back. (laughs) You know, you didn't have to keep that. But if you swore by the gold on the altar, oh, no, that was heavy. And you had to keep it if you swore by the gold. Now, who can keep up with all that garbage? Was it the sacrifice or the altar? Was it the last? I don't know. And that was the issue. You see, the the, the Pharisees, they, they were saying, I always keep my word. Well, that sounds good. But they were living by these elaborate tricks that were deceiving people by their taking oaths. When my sister and I were little, we could, we could hardly ever keep our promises to one another. We would never tell the truth to one another. But when it was really, really important, we would utter the phrase, I swear to the Lord. Now, we didn't do it in front of my mom because my mom did it. She's like, oh, you, know, you didn't say that phrase. But we would say that to each other because even though we didn't know much about God when we were young, we knew that you don't invoke the name of God unless you're serious. So we knew we were always lying, but when we said that, I promised to the Lord, it was like, oh, that's a real oath. 
And, and the, Jesus is saying, listen, it's not a sin to take an oath. You know, you read from time to time, believers will not swear on a Bible on a court because of this verse. But Jesus is not teaching we can never, never take oaths. What he's saying is you as a disciple, you are to be a man or a woman of your word. You shouldn't have to take oaths to convince people you're telling the truth. It shouldn't have to be that you're such a liar, like my sister and I were to each other as we were kids, that you have to invoke the name of the Lord and then you're serious. No, as a disciple, we should be men and women of our word. If you can't do something, be honest about it. Oh, I know it's, you want to help everybody, but if you can't do it, say no. I can't do that. And if you say yes, you're going to do it. Hey, try to honor that commitment. Friends, that's righteousness that flows from the heart, a relationship with God, not righteousness that fulfills just some outward obligation. So we looked at divorce, we looked at oaths. The fifth one deals with the law of retaliation. Look at verse 38. But I say to you, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other one also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants you to borrow, do not turn away. You know, there's a lot of flack the Bible gets for this passage. Oh, the Bible says eye for an eye. That means if, you know, I, I take someone's eye out, that means my eye has to be gone. And, and you hear that from people on the news occasionally. But understand the intent. The intent of this law in the Old Testament was to limit retribution. Limit it. You see, as sinful human fleshly beings that we all are, we don't like just to limit retribution. We want to take it to another level, don't we? When you're wronged, you're like, oh, no, you didn't. And then you'll say, I'll show you. I'm, it's like, oh, my son, my son. I love my son. But sometimes, you know, I'll walk by my son and I'm like, ah, you know, just, just a dad and son. Just a little, ah, little flick on the arm or something like that. And then he immediately bolts for his room. And what he's getting is his bat. You see, you see, you see, that's how it works in his brain. I just did a little, you know, and he'd be totally justified to go, but that's not what we do as sinners. It's like, oh, you me. Well, here's my back, you know, to your head. And that's what we do. It doesn't stop when we're seven. It happens our entire lives. We just get more sophisticated in our ways of getting back at one another. So the Bible says, hey, limited, 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 limited. But the Pharisees, the problem is they become judge, jury, and executioner to fulfill all their sinful tendencies in their heart. And again, Jesus says, not with the disciples. That's not a behavior of the child of God. Now, don't misunderstand. I don't believe Jesus is saying that we're not to stand against evil. Jesus stood against evil. it's, It's saying that when we're wronged, when our pride or dignity is attacked, we still need to be like Jesus. And like Jesus. Jesus, whose back was ripped open, who a crown of thorns was put on his head, whose hands were attached to that beam, and then he became sin for you and me. He looked down on the crowd and he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
There's no one like Jesus. There's no one like Jesus. How, how that must have just blown away those that were watching. We know it did for the centurion said, man, that was truly the Son of God. No doubt the centurion would normally see someone on the cross spitting and angry and just furious that this was being done to him and wanting with all that he was to get back to avenge. But Jesus is ministering from the cross. He's forgiving from the cross. And though it's a tall order as a disciple, hey, Jesus is our goal. Jesus is what we're looking at, we're going after. It doesn't mean you have to be a pushover. You know, you need to put it, what he's saying here in cultural context. For example, when Jesus told his disciples to turn the other cheek, I mean, it sounds like, hey, if someone punches you in the face, just say, punch me again, you know? And I, you gotta understand, culturally, Jesus said the, 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 the right cheek. And why I think that's significant is because to slap someone on the right cheek, most people were right-handed, you'd have to do it with the back of your hand. In other words, it was a calculated insult in Jesus' day to hit someone with the back of your hand, as it still is today. I mean, if someone backhands you, that's not, a, that's not a sign for I love you in any language. Someone hits you with the back of your hand. It's insulting. Someone's insulting you if they hit you with the back of your hand. And Jesus is talking about an insult, not just pure violence. Where God, you know, if you get hit, just keep hitting me, keep hitting me. No, he's talking about when we're insulted like he was insulted. When people are saying things about you like they said about him. Oh, the losses, you could seek damages. You could tear people down. Jesus is saying, hey, listen. You're my disciple. You're my disciple. I've got better things for you. There always is a balance. I love what Alexander White brings to this passage. He says, If turning the cheek would make the exalter more angry, if yielding the cloak would make the legal robber more greedy, if going the second mile would make the press gang more severe and exacting, resistance becomes a form of love and duty for the sake of the wrongdoer. Again, we've got to operate in the wisdom of the Spirit. There's time when you'll see someone needy and you should give to them even though everyone else in the world says no. You're a disciple. But there's also times when you're enabling that person by giving to them. And so you've got to in love say no. There's times when people are just going to keep abusing. And, and there's time you've got to be led by the Spirit. You've got to be led by the Spirit. And that's what's going to make you different. You see, the world's led by the flesh. And if their, their flesh is like, no, do this, go a different rec- direction. It, the world is led by the flesh. You're led by the Spirit. And there's times that you do things that don't make sense because it's out of love. And there's times that you do things that don't make sense where you're helping someone and it's out of love. It, it's, it's this amazing walk of the Spirit. And it's that, that the world sits back and says, we don't have that. We don't know how that operates. And it's that kind of unworldly love that won over the Roman world a revolutionary love from people who were wronged because of their faith, but they were disciples and they acted differently. It brings us to our final Old Testament example where Jesus says you're to love your enemies. Look at verse 43. But you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. 
that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet your brethren only, what do you have more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Jesus repeats this common phrase the Pharisees would use. Love your, you know, brother and hate your enemies. But understand, only half of that is a direct quote from the Old Testament. Only half of that. In Leviticus 19.18, it says, love your neighbor. The phrase, hate your enemy, is not found anywhere in the Old Testament. You don't need to start looking at it. God never exhorts you, hate your enemies. It was just a common phrase the Pharisees would use. Hey, love those that love you, but go ahead and hate your enemies. Jesus, man, turns it on its head. He says, I say to you, you need to love your enemies. Why would I want to do that? I mean, my enemies wrong me. They hurt me. They offend me. Why would I want to do that? Again, it makes you like Jesus. It makes you like Jesus. Jesus loves without limits and preconditions. He makes the rain fall on the just and the unjust alike. And if we're going to name the name of Christ, if we're going to be called Christians, you know what that phrase means, right? It means little Christ. That people are to see you and say, you know who you remind me of? You remind me of Jesus. You remind me of Jesus. That's it. You know, like I was joking about on Sunday with my son, just full of energy, just walking in here. Here he is again. He's jumping on Zeke's back and riding him down the hallway. And, just, and, I, and, 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 and someone walked by and says, he reminds me of watching you on stage. <laughs> and I say, well, there's a reason for that. He's my son. He's my son. The curly hair. I had curly hair when I was a kid. I don't know where it went praying for him glory hallelujah but i had curly blonde hair when i was a kid he's my he's my son he's my son he looks like me he acts like me we're supposedly sons of god right do we look like him do we act like him or do we look and act a lot more like the world you see to love our enemies makes us like god and secondly it makes us different from the world and both those are key It makes us different from the world. Anyone in the world loves their friends. (laughs) I mean, who doesn't love their friends? Someone loves you, gives you stuff, nice to you. Is that hard to love them? It's not not hard for me to love people who are nice to me. Anybody in the world can love their friend. Listen, it takes a disciple. It takes a disciple to love their enemies. You see, what Jesus is saying is a disciple can do even more than the best the natural world has to offer. There are many good, honorable people that don't know or believe in God and they love the people that love them. It takes a disciple to go even further. Well, that's hard. I know. And if you didn't think it was hard yet, just look at verse 48. So therefore... Be perfect, as my heavenly Father in heaven is perfect. Thank you, Jesus. (laughs) But remember, as we wrap it up tonight and go toward the table of communion, remember the purpose. 
The Sermon on the Mount has two purposes. To direct you in Christ and to drive you to Christ. And precious ones, both of these are so important. It's so important. If we latch on to one and not the other, as we looked at last week, we're going to fail in our understanding of what it is to be a disciple. You see, if I I just see it as directing me in Christ, I'm going to start going through this list and, all right, okay, I'm going to let go of the bitterness. I did it. Yay. All right, let go of the lust. Yay. And maybe I can work my way through all six. Maybe. I don't know if I can. You, You might be able to. And then I get to be perfect. I can't do it. So I get depressed. No, no. It's also to drive me to Christ. Where I say, Lord, I need you. I need you as my Savior. I'm so thankful that you died on the cross for me. What I'm going to celebrate as I come to the table of communion tonight. Lord, thank you for dying for me. And I enter into this poor in spirit where I see him as the Savior I so desperately need. But if I forget about directing me in Christ, I can just latch on to that second part and, and say, well, hey, hey, I've been driven to Christ, so therefore it doesn't matter how I live. I'm never going to make it on my own, so it doesn't matter that I walk around with bitterness in my heart and lust and, and, and hating other people. And, 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 and it doesn't. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. God wants to shape us into His image by the power of His Spirit. And it happens as we first are driven to Christ and we realize, Lord, I need you. I can't do this on my own. I want to put away the religiousness of the Pharisees that sticks up my nose and says, I'm righteous because I figured out the loopholes. I'm not righteous. And you know what? I hope I'm not hurting your feelings. No, I kind of hope I am if I am. You're not righteous either. You're not. Your sin has made you dirty. In fact, even your righteousness, your righteousness, Isaiah calls filthy rags. That's not great. You need a Savior. You guys know that. And so we embrace Him and we love Him and we say thank you that I'm going to heaven not because I've worked my way there, not because I'm going to get there and say, get over, you know, step off, I, I did it too. No way, no way. I'm going to enter into heaven just so blessed So blessed, Lord, I'm here because of your grace and your goodness that you poured out upon my life. Thank you, Lord. I'm driven to Christ, but then I'm directed in Christ. Lord, you've saved my soul, but now I want to be like you. I want to love like you love. I want to be pure like you are pure. I want to be a man of integrity like Jesus was a man of integrity. I want to be a man that's led by the Spirit and not led by my flesh. Man, I want when people see me to say like they said of those disciples in the first century where they noticed they were uneducated and untrained men, but they could tell that they have been with Jesus. Can people tell you've been with Jesus? When you hang out with you, is it like... Man, Jesus, I smell Jesus on you. The love coming from your heart, it's Jesus. Or is it like, man, it stinks of the world. What is it? If it's the latter, hey, we need to go to the table tonight and say, Lord, clean out this junk. Clean out the stuff that makes me smell like the world and the world's attitude and the world's self-focus. And let me draw near to you to be with you so I can be like you.
Father, I thank you so much that you love us. You, you love us so much. And, and if we ever doubt that, if we ever forget that, the reality is all we need to do is look to the cross. And at the cross, what we see is you bruised and bleeding for us who didn't deserve it, who certainly don't earn it. Lord, you love us, you love us, you love us. And we need you to save us from ourselves and our sin. But Lord, not only do you love us, you've chosen us to be your disciples. You've called us out of the world to follow you. And I think I'm speaking to maybe almost everybody because we're here on a Wednesday night. We want to be your disciples. And I thank you, Father, that you have chosen the foolish things of the world. You picked those 12 disciples. You picked men who were tax collectors, traitors to their own society. Men who were fishermen. They weren't rabbis. They weren't priests. They weren't Pharisees or scribes. They weren't the best the world had to offer, but they were men who you could shape and train and make into men who eventually the world would say of them, they could tell that they had been with you. And Lord, we come to you, to you I, I, I think, the same lot, tax collectors and sinners and those who are not the best of the best that the world has to offer. But you have loved us and saved us and now you want to direct us in your son. And so Lord, tonight, clean out our hearts anew and afresh. Clean out the bitterness, clean out the lust, clean out the tendency to be dishonest and try to trick people, clean out the hate, the love we have only for our friends. Lord, make us like you, we pray, by the power of your spirit. Father, I do pray for anyone here tonight, Lord, if there may be one or two that has not yet committed their heart to you, Lord, I pray tonight would be the night that they would surrender to you and say, Lord, I'm tired of living for the world. I'm tired of living for myself. I want to be your disciple. And with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you're in that place tonight, you feel distant from the Lord, not, not, because, you, not because you've messed up and you've sinned. We've all messed up and sinned. But you've never had that moment where you said, Lord, I'm not getting to heaven because I've earned it or deserved it. I just want to take what you did on the cross for me. Or maybe you have prayed that, but it's so long ago and you're so lost, you don't know what to do. You're, you're so ready to come home. Then it's time to confess, Lord, I need you. I need what you did on the cross to count for me. And Romans 10, 9 says that that transaction can happen as you believe in your heart and then confess with your mouth. So if you believe that tonight and you want to confess, then just right now where you sit, would you pray after me, Lord, I believe in you. And I don't want to just play church or try to work my way to heaven. I want to be yours. I want you to love me and forgive me. I want what you did on the cross to count for me. So Lord, tonight, I ask that you would be my savior that you would be my, my Lord. 
For I give my heart fully and completely to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The table of communion is set up on both sides of the stage. And we're going to close our service tonight by taking the next 15 minutes right up to 8 o'clock, because we ended at 8 o'clock, right up to 8 o'clock, and you can go up there and take communion as the Lord leads, the bread and the cup, and just remember, remember what Jesus did for you. Remember what it cost Him to save you. Remember how precious you are to Him. And then ask Him, Lord, clean me out and make me like you. So we're going to worship, and as you feel led, the table of communion is right there. Go ahead and come up and partake of the bread and the cup tonight. Let's worship the Lord together.